0: Radio, a constantly changing art form. Marconi. Lakehurst, New Jersey. Oh, the humanity the Mercury Theater. This is Austin Wells, ladies and
1: gentlemen. The New World Order. Hi, this is Casey Jason. From that first broadcast, a medium that has been proved. Home. Trim. Winnowed. Bonsai and pruned and deposited here today. Ready to be moistened with the watering can of evolutionary dew. this is The Dennis Miller Show.
2: What's up, Hiroshi? Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Blackcast Tribute 2, The Dennis Miller Show. We're here this week with some special episodes of Blackcast. We're going to celebrate... The decade since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show. The first episode of which, believe it or not, was Monday, March 26th, 2007. We're going to have some fun this hour. And, you know, I can't say I'm sure who's going to show up and join us here in this first hour of the celebration. But the way we operate here at the Blackcast is that anything can happen and usually doesn't. Who knows? Maybe today will be an exception. In any case, let's get to the soup of the day, which is a freeze-dried tomato basil soup with turkey. And it's brought to you by The Blackcast. Follow The Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T, on Twitter. Like The Blackcast on Facebook. And make sure to bookmark blackcast.com for each and every one of your blackcasting needs. Now, before we find out who our guest is going to be this hour, I can uh, stroll a little bit down memory lane. The show was uh, run out of... Oh, wait a minute. I hear a certain piece of music... That could only mean one person joining us, and I can't imagine anybody that I'd rather have with us right now to celebrate 10 years since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show. Larry O'Connor, how are you, sir? Christian Blatt, I am thrilled to be with you. <laughs> uh, and we're thrilled to have you, that is for sure. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us in this Celebration of a um, radio show that hasn't been on for two years, but uh, welcome to the backcast. <laughs> welcome, welcome back to the cast. Larry O'Connor. It's, you know, it's
1: a good lesson for me, Christian Blatt, to uh, to recognize a radio show that is no longer on the air. Because let's face it, I I'm I'm a, a whisker away from being in the same place. Oh, at that's... any given moment, I see my radio career flash before my eyes.
2: I think that that's untrue. I know that you've uh, moved to uh, drive time, as they say in the biz. You do 3 to 6 p.m. on WMAL in Washington, D.C., for people who maybe didn't know where Larry was now. So how much do you miss getting up at 3 a.m.? Uh, let me think about that. Not a bit.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: I, you know, you know I, mean, I think I told you I loved doing what I was doing for those four years when I was doing morning drive um, in Washington, D.C. I just hated when I was doing it. It was hard enough to wake up early enough to get on the air at 7 a.m. Pacific time on those days when I was fortunate en- enough to, uh, to be on the Dennis Miller show. Um, I thought 7 a.m. was the worst time in the world. And then suddenly the next thing I know I'm on the air at 5 a.m. Eastern. It was <laughs> insane. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy now to have a much more normal, uh, what do they call it? A cicada, uh, cicada rhythm. rhythm.
2: Yeah. That, I, I don't know. I'm always too tired to understand what any of that stuff means, but yeah, uh, like, what you did. You see what I did, did there.
1: That is good stuff. Yeah, Although I'm told that actually when you do it and then you stop and say I see what you did, you're actually taking the humor out of it and drawing attention to it well, and f- that's not what our, pros do.
2: Our friend Dennis Miller whose radio show we're celebrating uh, today with this very special show he used to talk about how another great comedian, Larry Miller, used to do this thing where he was the comedy deprogrammer and he would take a uh-huh. bit and not necessarily a bad bit but obviously it worked better if it if if it was indeed not a good bit, it was a scientific version of the "I see what you did there." You know, sort of going through why it's supposed to be funny, and get
1: out the the Glundbeck yeah. chalkboard and diagram the <laughs> sentence. And, and oh, I love that. I see, but even if you're Larry Miller, you can do that. I was just going to uh, say,
2: imagine Larry Miller's delivery, just sort of his presence, and he's like, right. "Well, oh, we well, yeah, no, oh, I see, I, I see what you did there. Let's go through <laughs> it." And uh, I love Larry Miller. Uh, That was another person who we were lucky enough to have guest host for Dennis uh, on a couple occasions, I believe. Since we're talking about The Dennis Miller Show, as you and I so often do, because without The Dennis Miller Show, I believe I would not know Mr. Larry O'Connor. I think that's a, a Pretty sure thing.
1: you're right. And no one else in the world would either, actually. So Well, that's uh, true, uh,
2: because uh, talk a little bit about how you found the show and sort of a very fortuitous connection you were able to make because of The Dennis Miller Show. And I'm not talking about myself, yeah. although getting to know <laughs> me, very important to your life.
1: It's pretty damn fortuitous. That's true. Uh, actually, it, it is. It's, it's weird when you think about all of the dominoes that fell because of of the Dennis Miller show. I I frankly I'm married now to a, an amazing woman and she would have never been in my life if this chain of events hadn't happened. So uh it, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean listen, I like any other uh, generation xer, Dennis Miller was a hero of mine. I thought he you know, he was part of the finest cast of Saturday Night Live. He was the finest weekend update host of all time. I was lucky enough to see the show live once, and and even though he just did the warm-up and the weekend update, he was all we were talking about afterwards when we went out for drinks in Manhattan. I um, mean, I loved Dennis Miller. I loved his show on HBO. I loved his late-night show. I loved everything that he did. Even his so CNBC I
2: heard, show? He, I loved
1: pretty much everything that he did. <laughs>
2: Hey, because of that CNBC show, I met my wife. So that's true. You know, it, yeah, it has a, a very soft spot in my heart for me. The CNBC. The, I gotta show. say,
1: I couldn't. The, the chimp freaked me out, oh, and the, I couldn't get past the chimp.
2: Yeah, that's because you never shot a bit with the chimp. Just it, the chimp beyond freaked me out. We were doing something for a sponsor where the chimp was supposed to roll in a tire, and I had a tire iron, and he got this look in his eye, the chimp, and I'm just like, I might have to use this tire iron on the chimp. <laughs> And I think something similar to that happened in studio once because all of a sudden the chimp went to the he actually, you know, retired. There's this rich guy basically took all the show business chimps and he paid to send them to in Florida. It's it's basically like the villages for chimps. <laughs> yeah. And so Mowgli was his name. So that that's where he went on to. I you know, the that show's been off for 12 years now, I haven't seen that chimp in 13 years. I don't know what chimp life expectancy is. So there's a chance that he's still with us, but if not, we could bow our head for a moment. Yeah. In terms
1: of, Let's have a moment of silence for Mowgli. We, I'm still getting my, my head wrapped around the idea of a retirement home for chimps. Right. And, exactly. And, and how look, many punchlines there are there that and, I couldn't even broach. By the way, uh, you
2: and I should be so lucky to end up at a retirement yes. home for chimps one day.
1: That's, that's now become my lifetime goal. <laughs> I know I, that's, that's, that's sort of the, that's where I'm aiming everything. I got to call my, my broker at fidelity as the rich guys say.
2: So anyway, uh, you were a so, fan so, of the Dennis Miller shows, most of them. And then you and, found out he had fan, a radio show
1: fan of everything, Dennis. And I was also a news, you know, I was working in the, in the theater business. I was the general manager of the Shubert theater out in Los Angeles. We had, you know, big musicals. We had rent and beauty and the beast and ragtime and sunset Boulevard. And I'm plugging away every day. And, and I was also a news and politics junkie. I listened to talk radio all the time. I listened to Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager and Rush Limbaugh. And, 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 uh, you know, I listened to all. That. So when I hear the, the, merging of Dennis Miller, one of my, my absolute favorites uh, in terms of comedian, in terms of uh, philosophers and observers of the American experience, cultural and political. And I hear him merging with the medium that I love so much, talk radio. I was there from day one. I was there right at the beginning. So 10 years um,
2: ago, you were there.
1: I was there on day one. Uh, he was on KRLA in Los Angeles. And and I, I believe he was there for his very... At least, let, let me put it this way. his The first time he was broadcast on KRLA, I was listening. Right. Now, I, I don't know if KRLA picked him up on day one.
2: Yeah, they were part of the uh, the Salem Radio uh, Mafia. So yeah, we were on like 20 stations because we were, we were good earners, right. as they say in the business. And we were on in LA. I believe we were on in the evenings and yes. that's great. So you were there for the first show. I, of course, was also there for the first show, except I was getting paid, but funny enough, what some people may not remember or may not have ever known. I was actually Dennis's assistant when the radio show started and our pal Salman was the sidekick and Salman and I were in a little studio, basically a closet in Los Angeles. And if you know, Salman, the idea of it being in a closet seems <laughs> very appropriate. And <laughs> <laughs> the show was run out of New York by a couple of guys who Dennis would refer to on the air as Scotty and the Kid. Uh, Dennis liked the Kid, but uh, Scotty, well, Scotty was a nice guy. I met him a couple of times it just wasn't a good fit. So three months in before you knew it, I was producing the radio show. And then the next, I guess, seven and a half years or so I produced the show, but I was there from the beginning. It, I don't know. It got a lot easier for me because it was very stressful when you have a producer who thinks they know better than the host and doesn't keep it to themselves. Look, all of us who produce radio, we know we know better than the hosts, but the good ones are smart enough to keep their mouth shut.
1: (laughs) Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny. I remember, was it was it that first week when when Michael Savage had started trashing uh, Dennis on the on the air? That was within the started. first
2: month. Uh, it might yeah. not have been the first week. But, yeah, Savage was just like, what is that show? We just talked about old movies. And then Dennis tried really hard to actually speak with Savage. And it's right. So funny. I loved that. Yeah. I love
1: that. And that move just uh, I mean, that put me in awe that he said, reach out to the doctor.
2: I just want to have him on the air. I just want to say hi.
1: That's all. I, I, I don't, don't want to yeah. even challenge him. He it. wanted I to say hi. And,
2: and he's like, if he wants to tell me how terrible I am, he can. Right. He no problem exactly. with that. But that's the thing about Savage, perhaps not appropriately named when it came to that. He's like, oh, no, Dennis is a good guy. You know, they, <laughs> like all off air. And I well, talked to his producer, his producer's name, by the way, Beowulf. Yes. Which led to, of course, the great drop from the show, which was from a trailer for a movie called Beowulf, which was just, I am Beowulf! So, Ah, you know, it helps to have an encyclopedic knowledge of a radio show that's not on anymore.
1: It all it all connects, doesn't it? Yeah. So I remember all of that. And, you know, actually, to, to, to bring it to myself, which is very important, uh, my new so. show here in, in Washington, D.C., um, is is actually the replacement for the aforementioned Michael Savage show.
2: He still does his show. It's just not on that station in that slot anymore. Right.
1: That is correct. And I wish him nothing but the best.
2: I, I was just wondering. I'm like, wait, has has uh, the Savage Nation been taken over? By, I don't know what. I guess Jim Rome Nation. I, I don't even know what <laughs> what, what nation of radio, it, it couldn't be Black Cast Nation. Black Cast Nation is kind of like a, a train terminal during off peak hours. You know, people yes. kind of silently listening, looking down, reading, not making eye contact. You might nod, but you know, it's not really a nation. It's it, it's a great group, though. We love Black Cast Nation. It's just nothing compared to Savage. Speaking of Savage, and I know how I'll be able to tie both of these things together, believe it or not, I did not meet Michael Savage, but I saw him once at a reception at the home of our friend Andrew Breitbart. He had the author uh, Bjorn Lomborg there talking about his, uh, I guess it was called global warming back then, back before climate change. Anyway, he sort of had a different view on it. and. Michael Savage was there. He showed up late by himself. And the way that I tell the story, and we'll say whether or not it's accurate another time, is that he was basically picking up hors d'oeuvres and stuffing them in his pocket, and then he walked out. Now, that might not be exactly the way it happened, but that's the way I like to remember it, and that's the way I told Dennis. He he did not really interact, but I saw him there. And the reason why I, I tell that story is, one, because it's funny, two, because... Please, if the Savage Nation wants to take on Black Cast Nation, I think it'll only help us. But it does tie together that you were first made aware of Andrew Breitbart because of the Dennis Miller show, unless I'm mistaken. Yes.
1: You have brought it right back to where we were headed, and thank you for that. So I'm listening at the beginning. And and, and you're right, the hours on KRLA made it hard for me to listen all the time in the evening. Uh, the, you know. So what I, I of course, became part of the DMZ, started downloading the podcast. And I remember so vividly one day I'm listening to Dennis interview this guy, Andrew Breitbart. And I had heard the Breitbart name just from clicking on links at Drudge Report and having it go to this site, Breitbart.com. I had no idea what it was, but it had a lot of wire stories, and it was Breitbart and and it was during this interview with Dennis uh that I learned that he was uh, one of the editors or the editor of of the Drudge report he worked with Matt Drudge and it was it was a surreal experience Christian because when he was on the air I remember Dennis asked him I say said, Dennis said something like so Andrew what's your life like what's it like I mean I I imagine you you know with like 17. Uh, computer monitors in your in your office and every room you go to, and you're constantly, you know, um, uh, checking out stories and constantly updating the site. And and you know, what are you doing right now? And uh, Andrew started chuckling and he said, "Well, actually, at this moment, I'm I'm diapering my son as I speak to you." <laughs> um, and I and he had a, and I learned that he had like a six month old baby. Like, well, kid you not, as I was listening to those words come out of Andrew Breitbart's mouth on the DMZ podcast i was diapering my son at the exact same time and it's always stuck with me that moment in my life and and i and for some reason i just i just cataloged it in the back of my mind and i said this 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 andrew breitbart guy this this means something that that we're both diapering our children and i learned that he had four kids I had four kids. He was diapering his youngest, his fourth child. His children were the exact same ages as my children. And and fast forward a couple of months later when again uh, Andrew's on talking to Dennis and he talks about the launch. This is after the election of Barack Obama, but before the inauguration, I think it was in December, mid-December or late December, maybe a week before Christmas. Uh, he announced that he was going to start a brand new blog, a site called Big Hollywood. And it was going to be all about people in the entertainment business who are right of center uh, politically. And he talked about how he had started the Huffington Post with Ariana. And at the time, Huffington Post was supposed to be sort of open to all political ideas, but it very quickly became a liberal site.
2: I remember Andrew explaining that to me at one point. You know, he basically had a whole bunch of very recognizable conservative talent that were going to contribute to it. And the way that he told me the story, basically their day jobs were like, "Ah, we don't think we want you contributing to this website. Because rightly so, if you write for National Review or Weekly Standard, they wanted to have you contribute for their websites, which, you know, we're still kind of in the early stages. But just the idea that Huffington Post could have been something so different than what it was. And, of course, that's one of those things that surprised people because – Andrew is obviously very much associated with the conservative brand. So the idea that not only did he work on the Huffington post, but that it was going to be something very different is one of those things that I think tend to surprise people. Uh, and by the way, while you were telling that story, my son Felix was diapering me because (laughs) I, I did make a mess because I'm so excited, but you were, uh, before we connect the dots from when you first talked to Andrew, you were blogging by, or this is before you started blogging as Stage Right, correct?
1: Correct. I, I had my own blog, but I didn't get too political on it. And, and, uh, and it was really off the radar. I mean, it didn't get a whole lot of, no, people weren't reading it. I was just doing it for my own fun. You know, when I would write about theater and, and the entertainment business, I would write a little bit about politics, but, uh, not too much. And, and frankly, nobody that I worked with really knew that I did it. Um, and I actually, it's funny, if I remember right, I, I think I referred to myself on the site as Larry O.C., but I, I didn't give my full name.
2: Because there's <laughs> so, no way that anybody could have figured out that somebody in theater with the on-screen <laughs> name as Larry O.C. God, who could that possibly be? George Decay?
1: <laughs> I, I, I didn't say I was the smartest guy in the world
2: at the well, time. Well, <laughs> you know what? Hey, neither of us must be because that's how we both ended up in radio.
1: That's true, the, the burgeoning, <laughs> growing industry of radio. Uh, so I reached out to Andrew right after hearing about this, and I said, listen, I, I you know, heard you on Dennis Miller. Um, I know you're focusing on film and television. It's called Big Hollywood. But I, I used to work in New York, work on Broadway. Here's who I am now. This is what I do. Um, I'm right of center. And uh, maybe I can give that perspective. And he immediately gave me his phone number and asked me to call him. And we talked. He asked me to write a couple of things so he could see if I could write, and I did. And so because of that, I was there on, on day one. I believe it was January 9th, 2009. I want to say maybe January 8th at the launch of Big Hollywood. But I was still working in the business. You just mentioned I wrote a stage right. And so w- blogging for Andrew, I knew that was going to get a much higher profile than where I was writing. And so I asked if I could keep a pseudonym and he and he allowed me to. Um, I called myself stage right. And for the first year that's that's what I did. I, I wrote a stage right at Big Hollywood and then at Big government when that opened up with the Acorn stories. and I became one of his more prolific writers.
2: Now in the theater world, there is obviously something different that the term coming out means. but what I'm saying <laughs> is what was the decision for you to come out as Larry OC aka Larry O'Connor and not just right by stage right? Was there a moment? was it well, just did it feel like there time? was?
1: There, there was a very distinct moment. And in fact, it happened on the Dennis Miller show a week before. The, so what happened was that whole first year of 2009, I was writing at Big Hollywood. I was getting more and more political. Um, I've always wanted to be in radio. I always wanted to try to be in radio. So around August or September of that year, I decided that I would launch an Internet radio show where I would comment uh, and and talk about all of the topics that we were writing about at Big Hollywood and at big government because these stories, you know, they all started, you know being a big thing. And regular talk radio was talking about it. So I figured, well, listen, since I'm on the inside on these sites, and I can get the writers of all these uh, posts to come on the air. I can get James O'Keefe to come on the air. Maybe I'll get Andrew Breitbart to come on the air. I'll just start a show on the Internet. And I called it the Stage Right Show. And it got really big, really fast. Andrew would come on at least once a week, and he would tweet that he was on. And, of course, everybody who followed him on Twitter would suddenly start listening to my show. And Adam Baldwin came on, and Andy Levy came on, and Greg Gutfeld came on, and, and all these people started coming on. And, and by December of that year... Because of my writing and because of my radio show, uh, Andrew said, I want to hire you. I want to actually put you on the payroll. Understand, I was still working a day job, and I was doing all of this for free. It was just a hobby. He said, I want to hire you. I want to start paying you to write on the site and to work for me, but I can't let you be anonymous anymore. Uh, You've got to reveal who you are. And that's the trade-off. And it was a tough one, but I I knew I was going to pretty much leave my existing career and completely change careers. And so I used to say it was my midlife crisis. Instead of getting a red Corvette, I decided to change careers and go into radio and and Internet journalism with Andrew Breitbart. And uh, so we did that. It it was on a day that Andrew was filling in for Dennis. I believe it was like the day before New Year's Eve or maybe it was that week between Christmas and New Year's.
2: Yeah, we would usually Uh, do sort of an end of the year thing. That sort of became an annual event that Andrew would kind of... I think that he called it the underreported stories of whatever the year was. And and that would make sense that that would be in 2009. Yeah.
1: And so it was December of 2009, going into 2010, when he decided he would do an entire show focusing on all of the stories that he had at Big Hollywood, Big Government, Big Journalism. James O'Keefe was on. You'll remember he uh, broke with Hannah Giles the story at Acorn. He had Patrick Coriel, who broke the story about the NEA conference call, where we learned that. Uh, people who had received grants from the NEA were then asked to create art on behalf of Obamacare and and Ob- initiatives and stuff, which was a bit of a scandal. All those things going on, and and he in included in that because he was always so generous and such a such a supporter of of everyone who worked on his sites. He included a big story was me revealing who I was. And I did it on the Dennis Miller show uh, with Andrew Breitbart as guest host. And there was no looking back, Christian. It was it was kind of a big deal for me.
2: And talk a little bit about the aftermath of that. So, you you know, Twitter wasn't what it was now, but it did exist. And you mentioned that when Andrew would go on the stage right show, he would tweet it out and you get a lot more attention, which, yeah, a tweet or a retweet from Andrew uh, meant suddenly a lot more attention. And some yes. of it good, some of it not. But yeah. Talk about after you did that big unveiling, did you hear from people in your, let's say, your secret identity, your regular life? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. So when I made that decision, I had sort of put my affairs in order (laughs) and uh, let the producers and people who were still working, that I was working for, let them know that I was going to take a hiatus um, and take a bit of a sabbatical. Um, So I had closed out a lot of the contracts that I had been working on, um, advising and consulting on on new developing shows, which was really what I was focusing on at that time. And when I was an anonymous, uh, there were a couple of friends of mine who had, uh, uh, it's funny, I created a stage right Facebook profile. Um, back then you could create an anonymous Facebook profile. And, and I was writing about theater and I was writing about things in the business. And suddenly a couple of times there, I, I would get friends of mine who I worked with friending stage right. You know what I mean? So so these are people that I worked with who clearly had read what I had written under my anonymous name, liked it and wanted to reach out to this anonymous person who was a conservative in the theater business. It was really funny and
2: not knowing that they knew the person who was stage right, that it was
1: exactly exactly. And a couple of them are still very good friends of mine. One of them is actually starring in a show on Broadway right now, but I can't say who it is. Uh, well but, I'm gonna but I'm they, gonna
2: just go out on a limb and say it's not lin Manuel Noriega or whatever his <laughs> name is. You are correct, sir. Yeah. You are And correct. I know it is real. Or the nice. F-word engine. I, 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 <laughs> Okay. I knew what his real name was. I just thought it would be funny to call him uh, Lin-Manuel Noriega. And that just occurred to me now for the first time. By the way, the day you're talking about was Tuesday, December 29th, 2009. The look first you hour, with your archive. Yeah, I was able to look it up. The first hour, big Hollywood contributors, Mike Flynn, Michael Walsh, Larry O'Connor, and how do you say Patrick Corielchi? Is it, I, I never got Patrick his name right. Corielch.
1: Patrick Corielchi Corielch, who, who happened to be in D.C. this last Uh, February for CPAC and 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 sought me out and and I just reunited with him. I haven't talked. You
2: want to talk about a crazy moment is being at CPAC. I the only CPAC I ever went to was 2008. I was there basically because Andrew encouraged me to go, and trying to walk across a room at CPAC with Andrew, I felt like at least I had some inkling to what it was like to be with one of the Beatles because yes. everybody needed to talk to him and he stopped and he talked to everybody. You know, some of it was people had big ideas and they wanted to, you know, try and get into business with him. They wanted his advice. A lot of them were just people that wanted to say hi and, you know, thanks for everything you do. Him. But yeah. yes, no, CPAC with Breitbart is one of the craziest experiences that, uh, that I can remember, certainly associated with the radio show. You know, You mentioned the Stage Right Show, a lot of the big guests that you had on there. You know, he didn't mention as a guest uh, Christian Blatt, the producer, (laughs) the executive producer of the Dennis Miller Show, who came on the Stage Right Show. Do you remember what I came on to talk about? I remember you coming. I don't remember. No, you came on to talk about. Was it a movie or was it? I'll tell you what I came on to talk about. I came on to talk about TCAP, the Time Capsule Accountability Project. That's right. (laughs) What the hell was that? It was. I remember that now. It was one of those ideas, I think, that the suits knew would run out of steam eventually. So they're like, you know, if he gets all the materials together, we'll spend the money on the time capsule accountability project. Dennis wanted to just take things that I guess were sentiment of the day, but sort of have it be accurate. And I don't even quite understand what it was and yet i went on your show to talk about it i had pretty detailed (laughs) notes i understood a little bit better back then but uh our our mutual friend sarah ricard who used to work on the dennis miller show every once in a while she and i will trade a message be like what the hell was was t-cap (laughs) you know totally forgot about that no no but that's
1: you're correct and by the way i omitted your name only because i was going in chronological order and if i remember right uh, these were all the guests I had had up until I, I, I you know, revealed. That's myself. true.
2: I, I would not be on that show until I knew who I was Ex- talking to. <laughs> exactly. I refuse, and I don't think it's a secret. I believe you met your now wife working on the Stage Right show, unless I'm mistaken. Correct. Yeah,
1: correct. Meredith was was uh, an early listener of the show uh, because she was reading my stuff at Big Hollywood. She was reading everybody's stuff at Big Hollywood. And so she saw that I was doing this thing. She started listening. She started giving me advice via Facebook message about, you know, making the show better. And I said, listen, I need a producer. Do you want to produce it? And she said, well, I live in Oklahoma. And I said, that doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, I I happen to know that
1: Dennis Miller doesn't uh, is doesn't (laughs) sit in the same room as his producer.
2: That's true. I've only met him five times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but you married him,
1: too, which is really remarkable. Yeah. I did.
2: Yeah. But, so, you know, Carolyn and Heather understood. They knew that we were destined to be together.
1: Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so- a, You're sort of like sister wives, all of you, aren't you?
2: <laughs> exactly. So you you're see, all Dennis's sister basically what we're saying is that because of Dennis Miller, Larry and I are married not to each other. But right, we were exactly. both able to, you know, because of of these uh, this long and winding road, we uh, so thanks, Dennis, because I know he's listening. He's a fan.
1: I, I the thanks doesn't even begin. Yeah, to, but to, to nothing makes him. Nothing makes I get all mushy when I think about this, Christian, not, I really do. Nothing
2: it's, makes him more uncomfortable than uh, heartfelt. Thanks. I, Just uh, I know. Yeah, just like so he is
1: listening. Well, that, that's what makes this so beautiful. So I can do it yeah. here in the setting, not face to face, not make him feel uncomfortable. Um, but be completely sincere and genuine. I mean my life is so much better because of Dennis Miller and because of the show you guys put together. And I gotta say, I, I miss it. I miss that show. I loved that show so much. And even when I got my gig out here in DC, I would still listen as much as I could. Sometimes I was afraid it would influence me or, you know, make me, you know change the way I did what I did, but but um, every once in a while, like every every week or so, I'd have to go back and listen to at least one more. Yeah, you didn't uh, want to start
2: uh, using yeah. a shofar during your show, you know, I think that it would have... <laughs> <Exactly. laughs>
1: Although I did wear the fez uh, most of the time during the first <laughs> I, year. I
2: actually remember you uh, posting a picture of the fez. I, I still have one. I, I gave away the remaining fezes to a couple of close friends of the show, but uh, I'm keeping one for myself. And yeah, I remember that you continued to sort of You know, keep tabs on the show and check in. But you've been in DC. Has it been five years now already? Four four and a half. Four and a half half
1: years now. I I came here basically. I moved two weeks before the uh, presidential election of twenty twelve.
2: I can't believe it's been that long. I mean, it's uh, yeah. It feels like it was much more recent that we were going to afternoon angels games thanks to our friend Royal Oaks. Thank you, Royal Oaks. Anyone who listens to the Blackcast knows that Royal Oaks, the legal analyst for KNBC-TV here in Los Angeles, he has amazing seats to Angels games, but he he's, he's a lawyer. He's got to work during the day. So weekday day games were in the sweet spot for people who worked in radio, and we would uh, we would go together. Uh, but there were only four seats, so usually Agent Starling was left behind. But, you know, he's the first to say that he's he doesn't love the sports, Speaking of the sports, you know, baseball season is nine. It's upon us. How is your attitude?
1: I know what you're trying to do here. You're trying. You're trying to shame me and make people think that I am a bandwagon jumper. I just want to know how you
2: I just want to know how your attitude is. I didn't ask about no. your angels. No, but I know, know my... where it's
1: headed. I know where it's headed, <laughs> Christian.
2: It may or may not head there. We'll have to see where the conversation naturally takes us, Larry. You know how I, radio works.
1: I, as you know, I am a lifelong Nationals fan.
2: <laughs> All the way back to 2005, because before that they were the Expos. I
1: Nationals. My Washington Nets, I think they're going to be all right. They made some pretty uh, uh, interesting moves over the But I'd rather uh, ask how your Murphy-less Mets did last year. If I remember right, you said the Nets made a big mistake picking up Murphy in the the free agent market. Did you not?
2: I I did, and I stand by that. Not that last year was a mistake, but I don't remember how many years it was. But I remember it was too many years and too many dollars, which... He also was uh, very angry, <laughs> so uh, he beat the ball like it owed him money, I think is something that Dennis used to say. And
0: yeah.
2: But here's the thing. It didn't matter what kind of a season either the Mets or the Nats had because there was some kind of divine intervention where the unthinkable happened and the Chicago Cubs won the World Series last year. I think yeah. that that is the most shocking thing that happened last year. Donald Trump becoming president is a far Second, in terms of shocking things that happened last year, the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series, even in game seven going into extra innings, I still didn't think they were going to do it because they're the Cubs. That's not what they do. By the way, it's not what they're supposed to do. I feel like the world has not been right since the Cubs won the World Series.
1: Yeah, I'm with you, although I know for a fact that you were rooting for them because had they not won the World Series, then the Cleveland Indians would have won. And a- I, I don't know. I, I I get a sense from you that you have a, a bit of hostility towards the Cleveland Indians now and again. What
2: a garbage franchise for a third-rate <laughs> city. Now, I feel like... You think I, he's listening? Is he listening? Yes, because I think he likes you. I, I get the feeling that he does listen sometimes. And... I think a lot of people know what I'm alluding to what Larry and I have a little inside joke about but it's a fairly <laughs> outside joke there was a guy named Paul P on the DMZ message board and he just hated me so much and this is before I was really on the air that much this was just when I would post and he didn't like me and you know you just you try to play the game with these people and you know make nice <laughs> and he was not having it so then I just went the other way and I just tore into him whenever I could. Larry O'Connor himself was kind enough to do a bit that we've only done a couple times on the show because (laughs) we don't get much hate mail, but it was a dramatic reading of hate mail, which I really appreciate you doing. And it was a lot of fun. And, he basically yeah he was such a vocal cleveland indians fan and i don't really have much against cleveland or the cleveland indians until i met this guy paul p i didn't even meet him until i crossed paths with him and then i'm like no no that place is terrible and it it was kind of a lot of fun to do because it got so heated at one point and he had submitted (laughs) photos we had like meet the dmz he had submitted photos of him dressed like the guy from twilight Uh, I can't think of his name now, you know, the, the, the main actor from Twilight. And I know he's listening and he's shouted out his name right now you know the one that was Kristen Stewart's boyfriend and also yeah, the in the movie yeah the dude who was on
1: Harry Potter yeah
2: Robert Pattinson I had to look up the guy's name because I was going to fixate on it anyway so he had pictures where he looked like him and so that became a running joke and then he also had he decided that he didn't like Agent Starling either so he started talking about how he was on his parents insurance and all these things and meanwhile like will had a job and was on insurance provided by Westwood One Whereas I believe Paul P., as a college student, was on his parents' insurance. And then there was a magical day when he was banned from the DMZ because I was sent by an anonymous source screen grabs of his Facebook page where he had stolen jokes from none other than Dennis Miller, and he did not give attribution. So I posted on the DMZ, you need to repent these sins, you need to apologize, you need to take them down. And he doubled down and said, no, it wasn't him. And I knew it was him because he was a DMZ member, so I had his email address. So I knew it was him. I, I've, it's so funny because I was not thinking about talking about this today, and I'm so glad we are because the the hate is renewed inside me. Now I want to find him. I want him to be listening. <laughs> I want him to post. I don't know if he's on Twitter, but I hope he tweets at Blackcast, B L A D T C S T. And he ended up getting banned because of that. And I think Dennis had said a long time before he's like, oh, this guy, you're always getting into it. You can get rid of him. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's more fun. And he's like, yeah, I, he's like, oh, I get that. So it was fun while it lasted. And as we look back on the Dennis Miller show, the good, the bad, the Paul P, AKA the ugly, you know, we just have to <laughs> look at everything. And it, it's fun to live in that moment. But Larry, going down nope. that road was a lot of fun. But it, you dodged the question your uh. attitude is strong, right? That's what it really this comes the-
1: First of all, I want to thank you for answering the burning question that's always been on everybody's mind, which is what does one need to do to get banned from the DMZ? And now now we know, because my God.
2: That was pretty much it. There were a few people who did get banned. There There were a few things that people who attacked other members and after they were warned didn't give up. And then those people kind of were looking to be banned. You know, any any friends in the DMZ who I imagine are listening because they're all such fans of Larry O'Connor, they want to take this stroll down memory lane, they'll remember the RP McMurphys and some mm-hmm. of the people that got banned from the board. And I don't mind using his screen name because it's not his real name. There is someone whose real name I will not say who I think is probably listening because he continued to archive and save every episode. And when wasn't wasn't posted, we would hear about it from this person. Anyway.
1: <laughs> um, my natitude. So yes. back to my natitude. Yes, your natitude. Uh, uh, and, and, and again, so now I love this. I love this whole thing that, you know, you're, you, uh, Murphy, oh, for the first year, sure. But in the long haul, it's too much money. And it's, and it's too many years. You know, uh, as you know, I am a lifelong Detroit Tigers fan.
2: <laughs> yes, I and, am.
1: And, and my brothers in Detroit all said the same thing about Max Scherzer. Oh, my God, you can have Max Scherzer. He's already over the hill. Oh, seven years, two hundred and seven million million. That's way too much fun. How many no-hitters does Max Scherzer have to throw for the Nats for people to see that this was a pretty good move? I mean, I, I, how many uh, uh, Cy Youngs does Max Scherzer how need to How many
2: win? mismatched eyes does he need to have?
1: exactly you don't tell me you wouldn't like to have max scherzer in your clubhouse in your bullpen my friend so uh so so please don't start with me on that by the way apparently and, and by the way back to the cubs for a minute yeah. uh they only won because joe madden is their manager and you know i am a lifelong <laughs> angels fan and joe madden was the bench coach uh for, during for the, the magical yeah. 2002 world series
2: that's true it, it was the angel Tude that rubbed off <laughs> on, that's uh, right all the all the thunder sticks being pounded. By the way, Daniel Murphy only signed a three-year deal with the Nationals. I just looked it up. <laughs> Too, uh, many years,
1: huh? Too many years on that deal?
2: I don't think he was going to take a three-year deal with, the, with yeah. the Mets. I think he was like, I got to get paid. You know, here's the thing, though, for both of those teams, for both the Nats and the Mets, they both have very good teams put together. We'll talk again during the season about which one's better, but they're both kind of on borrowed time because these teams are not going to be able to stay together much longer for the Mets. It's all the, the young aces that as soon as they become free agents, no one will be able to afford them. And, you know, probably two of them will end up on the Yankees. So it, it'll be sort of a heartbreaking thing. And, you know, the year that the Mets did make it to the World Series and lost to the Royals, that was probably their best shot was 2015 you know the yeah. if you remember the time that i flew across the country to go to the world series and i went to two world series games and I, do. I won't say how much i spent uh they didn't win either of the ones i went to but i would not trade the experience because larry if any, yeah, of, your, if any of your if any of your 12 favorite teams were in the world series i'm sure you would like to see them and that's and i knew that's where you were headed of course and that's just that's just wrong <laughs> and that's just not fair my Nats are gonna be
1: fine. I'm very excited about my Nats. And and I'm sure you're alluding to Bryce Harper being uh, you know, the Nats are on borrowed time because Bryce Harper will become a Yankee as soon as his contract up. I hope that doesn't happen. I, I do like Bryce Harper, actually. And and I think he's perfect right where he is. So so uh here's my problem with my Nats, and 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 this is what I can't shake because I really do love them. I'm a lifelong Nationals fan. Yes. Uh, But here's my problem, and the problem is uh, Dusty Baker. As you know, Christian, I'm a lifelong Angels fan. (laughs) Yes. And, and, And that 2002 World Series, of course, the Angels triumphed over the San Francisco Giants, led by Dusty Baker. And I've always thought that Dusty Baker is a choke artist, that Dusty Baker doesn't know how to handle his pitchers, and he never is able to win the big game. Look at that World Series in 2002. Look at when he was the manager of the uh, Cubs and the the famous Bartman game. Uh look at when he went to the Reds and he had a great squad at the Reds but he couldn't win the big game. And the same thing happened last year. Sadly, the Nationals looked really good and they choked and and, and I have a feeling that they're going to choke again and I think as long as Dusty Baker Again, because I'm a lifelong Angels fan, I have a bias against him. As long as he is their manager, uh, my Nats, and of course you know I am a lifelong Nationals fan, uh, I think that they will not be able to win the championship. So I am very, very nervous. But I am excited about my my Washington Capitals. Uh, As you know, I'm a lifelong Capitals fan. And uh, they're going to do great in the Stanley Cup this year. Hopefully they won't go up against my Detroit Red Wings or my Los Angeles Kings. I'm sure you know that I'm a lifelong Detroit Red Wings fan. But it's so funny
2: because you lived so much closer to anaheim and yet you were not a ducks fan
1: never been a lifelong ducks fan yeah. although if they do make it to the stanley cup i will <laughs> rethink that
2: you will rethink I will re- I will perhaps rethink that. reapply I for lifelong fan status as, a, as an anaheim ducks right. fan
1: Yeah, i've got the cred i lived in uh <laughs> just outside anaheim for quite some time yeah uh, by the way speaking of sports i don't know if you know this big news but uh starting this season the uh washington redskins and as you know i mean i'm sure you know i'm <laughs> oh, a lifelong redskins fan <laughs> The Washington Redskins uh, will be broadcast right here on the great WMAL in Washington, D.C. So we're we're the home of the Redskins starting this year. That's, and look,
2: as someone who lived in Washington, D.C. for one summer, I was a White House intern. No, I never met Monica, but that's the question that I usually got asked after I was a White House intern. Although I did actually meet her when she was on SNL. It was actually a good job interview question. When they'd see White House interns, did you know Monica uh, No, I didn't. But when I was a, a page at NBC, I did meet her then. And then I can talk about my experience. But anyway, I know how much coverage the Redskins get and it's crazy whether they're having a bad year. And now that there's a baseball team, it almost doesn't matter how well the Nats are doing because Redskins are still going to be first. I'm not saying that nobody cares about the Nats. I would just say that their first love will always be the Redskins and you're no matter what sport it is, you're going to be playing second fiddle, maybe third fiddle because the Redskins basically dominate everything. But that's great news that they're going to be on WMAO.
1: You'll be, you'll be seeing me tweeting and Instagramming and Facebook. Well, I did.
2: I did see you and Meredith go to a few games over the last couple of years. So it seems like you're you're in full D.C. mode. You might actually qualify as a Washington, D.C. insider at this point. You're, you're a Beltway uh, uh, insider. Wouldn't that be accurate to say, Larry?
1: Inaccurate, sir. Inaccurate. <laughs> I I, uh, I do live inside the Beltway. But, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that's kept me from being like that is my kids still live with their mother in Southern California. And I fly back and I, I go back probably every two to three weekends. And it's really nice to get out of Washington on a regular basis. And uh, even though Southern California isn't necessarily real America either, I, I still feel like it, I've got, you know, family in the Midwest and uh, I, I do feel like I'm. I haven't slipped into that trap and and also being on talk radio much of you know what we do on talk radio is to comment on and throw a light on all of the things that are wrong with Washington and 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 I and the people who live here they agree you know they know that there's a problem in this town so um because I do that on a daily basis I think it's kept me from being a beltway insider but thank you for trying to disparage me
2: no 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 I just felt like you'd been there so long I thought it would be a badge of honor that you'd been a lifelong beltway insider you know but uh, apparently right. uh, by the way the Larry well, Congress- I am a lifelong
1: Long Nats fan, Caps fan, Wizards fan, and uh, Redskins fan. Wow, the Wizards
2: that. even. Now, that that's a long road to hoe. But, uh, by the way, Larry O'Connor show, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. on WMAL at WMAL DC. Now, you, the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is you're now the online editor at Weekly Standard.
1: This is going to be a short and awkward conversation. I- <laughs> I should have given you a heads up on this. Then why is Um, it on your Twitter? I haven't adjusted that yet. I did. I I was I started working at the Weekly Standard January 1st of this year. Right. But actually, it's new development. Just as of this last week, I have decided to move on to pursue other opportunities, Mm -hmm. which I will which I will be announcing within the next week. I wish them all the best.
2: There goes eight pages about Fred Barnes. Oh, well, (laughs) Who, by the
1: way, is a lifelong Wizards fan,
2: (laughs) I, I don't doubt it. You know, one thing I definitely want to talk to you about, though, and, you know, we we alluded to him, we mentioned him, uh, is, of course, the great Andrew Breitbart. And you and I talked briefly when you were kind enough to call in for the 200th episode of The Blackcast. And the thing that I think bothers me, well, the thing that bothers me the most, of course, is that Andrew's not still around anymore. And then beyond that, the thing that really irritates me is when people of any kind of opinion feel like they know what he would think today and no one knows what he would think today because tragically it's been five years since he passed away and who knows what he would think in those years there are a lot of hints you can have there are things that you and i even talked about that he probably would have enjoyed seeing people melt down live on tv on election night when they couldn't believe that hillary wasn't winning but i I don't like the way that his legacy can get thrown around. I'm not even talking about the website with his name on it. It's just the way that people invoke him sometimes. And it's like, you know what? You don't know. What I really like is a pinned tweet you have. And it's from August 17th of last year. And maybe you don't even remember that you pinned it. But it says, this is about Andrew. His response to the Democrat media complex was to expose and destroy it not to create a conservative version. And I think that that's a fair summary of our friend Andrew. Yeah. When you when you think about <laughs> when you think about Andrew and you think about today, is there one thing that you're just like, "Oh, if only I could find out what he thought about is it the fact that Donald Trump is president, is it the fact that Hillary isn't president, is it something completely different? It, you know, Magically, you're able to have one five minute conversation with him on one topic. What would you want to talk to Andrew about right now?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd love to hear him rant about the Dodgers.
2: Maybe <laughs> so would I. That's the thing <laughs> that I always say to people is that, you know, like he would get so worked up about politics. You have no idea unless you'd ever <laughs> seen him talk about Andre Ethier and just the exactly. way that he would be so much more passionate about the Dodgers. And, you know, Sabes, Munga, and I went with him – In the NLCS in 2008, when they lost to the Phillies, I've told this story a few times. Matt Stairs hits a pinch-hit home run, which, by the way, this is nine years later. That ball has still not landed. He hit the (laughs) ball so hard. And the Phillies went on to win the World Series. So, you know, that, that was definitely their year. But just being with him in after that game and then he was on the phone with his friend larry soloff not larry o'connor and they were they'd both been at the game but they were you know in traffic in la talking to each other on cell phones which is kind of the way it works in la if you've never lived here it sounds weird but believe me it's not and the way that he talked about i was just like man there were I, i knew what podcasts were at that point but they were not as prevalent But that was a moment where I was like, "Wow, I wish I had recorded that conversation for a podcast because the way he (laughs) talked about the Dodgers is, you know, because it had mattered to him his whole life. Politics had mattered to him his whole life. You know, it was like his adult life. And he would always want to talk about the Dodgers. And, yeah, I sort of thought about that last year when they were in the playoffs and – perhaps poised to beat the eventual champion Chicago Cubs. And everybody was like, oh, my God, you know, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. I'm like, if he was around right now, he would be so focused on that (laughs) series between the Dodgers and the Cubs, you know.
1: Amen. And and honestly, I mean, you, you know, I had never thought about it. But but when you just posed it that way and said, you know, if you had five minutes with Andrew Breitbart, what would you want to hear him talk about? I would not waste it on politics. I, Seriously, it would yeah. be it would be about baseball and 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 talk about our kids. Um, and and you know, listen, I'm with you. I, no one knows what he thought. You know that that pinned tweet that you're referring to. Um, that that was I mean I'll say it it was very specific I you know he he hated the idea of of George Stephanopoulos moving right from the Clinton White House to an anchor desk at ABC News and 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 he hated it. he called it the Democrat media complex the way that the mainstream media worked in connection with the Democratic Party and politicians it nauseated him and let's face it I mean the guy who had been running the Breitbart News network the Breitbart News website is now special advisor to Donald Trump and and ran. Donald Trump's campaign. I can't, in my opinion, and of course, everyone has their opinion about what Andrew would have supported. And this has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with, it doesn't even have anything to do with Steve Bannon directly. It has to do with what Andrew believed in. And in my opinion, I don't think he would have loved the idea of somebody moving right from a conservative website Uh, and running a conservative website to seamlessly running a Republican politician's campaign and then jumping right into the White House. To me, it's not consistent. And uh, the media needs to be the media, and politics needs to be politics, and never the twain should meet.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the, the George Stephanopoulos thing, obviously, as uncomfortable as that made people, it at least made sense because he had done the political thing. And then it's like, well, once you, you know, there's a shelf life for political hacks. At some point, you're going to have to get into a new career. But then sort of transitioning into government from media, I, I, I definitely agree with, with both sentiments. You know, they're they're both should make people uncomfortable. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think that people were so happy that something different happened, you know, that not what everyone had told them was going to happen, that even people who didn't love Trump got caught up in it and were very excited that this different thing that that the people that they hated hated this guy. So, you know, the enemy of my enemy might be a fun guy to follow on Twitter. I don't know if it makes him the the ideal president, but I, I agree with all these mixed sentiments that were going on. And, you know, look, it, it, we're still only two months in to the Trump yeah. administration, which I host a, a streaming video show and a podcast called The Trump Report. And I remind yeah, the very liberal co-hosts all the time that, you know, we're only— Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, into the administration and uh, the despair on their face when I tell them that uh, there's there's so much more to come. But. What there's not much more to come for is uh, this lovely conversation with our friend Larry O'Connor. I appreciate you taking up so, so much. You're so good at that. I used to be in radio, but... Nah, me <laughs> <you> too. <know. laughs> hey, you still are. I'm I'm on the internet, though, and I can use foul words like heck and gosh and dang. So the internet gives me the freedom that I needed. But anyway, Larry... Shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you can yeah. take that to the motherfucking bank. Anyway, hey now. We, hey now, Larry, thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time. And again, he's at Larry O'Connor. You don't need my help getting more followers. You have 24.7 thousand followers.
1: It's true. Follow him instead.
2: Oh, fake Larry. Yeah. At MP House. Right. Yeah. You can pretend follow him. Pretend Larry.
1: Yeah. Pretend, Wanna be Larry. Pretend
2: Larry who overcompensated and got one extra kid because he wanted to show you up. Yeah. Yeah,
1: sad, so sad.
2: And of course, Larry O'Connor show Monday to Friday, three to six p.m. Eastern. And uh, they could listen to that on the Internet, right? If somebody doesn't live in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yes.
1: Yeah. We get a lot of live streamers on the Internet and lots of downloads of that podcast at larryoconnorshow.com. show dot com.
2: All right, Larry. Well, I will yep. let you go. Thank you so much. And uh, let's catch up soon. Hopefully we'll be on the same coast and at one of your lifelong favorite teams in the near future.
1: Uh, and rest in peace, Chuck Barris.
2: Oh, yes, I did see that. Yeah. yeah. Gene Gene the Dancing Machine will be uh, sure. dancing off one last time for Chuck Berry. Pretty
1: sure they're but dancing together now. Yeah, I think I, Gene Gene left us a I, while I, ago, I, too.
2: I think you're probably right. All right. Well, he's uh, going. Uh, he, he'll be there with the Unknown Comic, who I think is actually still alive, but <laughs> he doesn't wear his But his the career is dead. Hey! <laughs> hey! On that note, thank you so much, Larry. We'll uh, Thanks, talk to Christian. you again soon. Uh, Yes, the one and only Larry O'Connor, as I mentioned on Twitter, at Larry O'Connor. Make sure you follow him there. Always great to get to talk to him. And obviously, we want to know what you all thought of our conversation. Any comments you want to throw in, you can tweet us at Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And of course, like The Blackcast on Facebook. Now we're joined by another great friend of The Dennis Miller Show, former Republican Congressman of Michigan, Thaddeus McCotter. Welcome back to The Blackcast. TMAC.
0: Hey, Christian. Nice to talk to you. And, and I almost mean that.
2: I know. Look, and, and I almost meant that it was great to have you on the show. So you see, we're almost being sincere, which when you consider the state of the world today, almost sincerity is almost as valuable as actual sincerity. Yeah,
0: nobody takes the time to pretend anymore. At least we do. <laughs>
2: It's called true. Civility. Everything's just filled with hate now. <laughs>
0: just validate the hate, man.
2: <laughs>
0: it seems to be all about, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, people loved when you would be on the Dennis Miller Show, and you even guest hosted, as I recall. People would like to know, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm just, it's nice that I can
0: be avocational about uh, the political scene these days. That means that you can watch it and then almost immediately turn your head hold your nose and hope not to vomit.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Instead of having to basically keep the <laughs> keep the horse blinders on and you can't look away. Actually, I feel like being and you could speak to this better than I could, but I feel like being an elected official, being in Congress is sort of like the scene in A Clockwork Orange when Alex has his, his eyes pried open with those little those little wire spider arm things, and he can't look away from the TV. Was, was that an accurate assessment of what it's like inside the Beltway?
0: Well, I remember what happens to him after they program him. You know, every time you see something violent or disturbing, he starts to get nauseous. Yeah. (laughs) So so I think you're probably on to something here.
2: You are very relieved to not be in that. I'm not going to say that you use this word, but in that pit. That hellhole, that that uh, hive of scum and villainy, to borrow a phrase from Star Wars.
0: Well, I prefer cesspool, because again, we're pretending to be civil.
2: <laughs> That's true. So, You're pretending to be much, much more refined and classier than I am.
0: Because it's, well, it's a very chaotic time, and as you remember, when I was with Dennis, and, and you were you were half asleep at the switches, <laughs> I kept talking about how globalization is going to lead to a very chaotic period of time. And we talk about the Breitbart theory that politics is downstream from culture and that the culture shocks that were hitting the Midwest in the early stages of globalization were eventually going to spread. And Washington itself will come to be viewed as problematical in the way it operates. And all this has come to pass. So, to a certain extent, I'm not surprised. I am surprised by the fact that there seems to be an attempt to articulate this, but it's it's not really coming across. And so when we start up, joking about to validate the hate, it seems that both sides, it's a much more comfortable place for both sides to be, which is trapped in some of the arguments of the past, as opposed to looking at where we have to go for the 21st century in terms of taking an outdated, outmoded model of top-down government and turning it into more of a horizontal, citizen-driven form of government to match our consumer-driven economy. Because there will be places where people can find common ground on those. And when we used to in Congress, when I was still there, back in the dark ages. <laughs> but you, what, you, what, you, what you would find out is that on issues such as the Wall Street bailout, you would see the cross currents of globalization, is what I call them, where the traditional this is what a Republican votes for, this is what a Democrat votes for, were, were eroded. And you would see strange coalitions emerging because of the novelty of what you were dealing with and the novelty of the circumstances in this chaotic period of time. Now what we seem to see is everybody seems to be back in their bunkers and it seems in many ways, as I said, there seems to be a, almost a fearful contentment to be willing to argue something outdated, arguments and grievances of the past, as opposed to looking for ways to move forward. And that's why we seem to be kind of stuck in a rut here.
2: But would you say that, obviously, for better or for worse, and the way the media will tell us, it is certainly for worse. There is for
0: better? There's a for better. Oh, I'm eager. I am perked right up.
2: I think that when I when I finish the statement, you'll probably realize, oh, no, there's not a for better. But I'm always hopeful that there will be a for better. But the new blood in Washington in terms of this outsider, outsider Donald Trump, who is not someone that most people expected to be president. My argument would be including Donald Trump. And there is sort of this idea that, well, look, he's not going to break it any worse than it's already broken. Do you feel like there is any chance that this could actually make a significant impact? Or in his attempt to drain the swamp, is he just legitimately making it even swampier?
0: Well, I think one of the things people have to realize, and in hindsight, Russell Kirk said it about Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, when he was elected, everybody expected him to do everything overnight. And he wasn't perfect. There were things the conservatives didn't like that he did. But over time and over the entirety of his tenure as president of the United States, on the whole, he helped the American people write the ship because eventually no matter how bad it gets the American people will write the ship because it's the American people that make America great not the government uh, the government on any given time can be
2: poor to horrible
0: <laughs> but it's the <laughs> American people that keep America great
2: and by the way that is being kind again as we are trying to striving to be better poor to horrible is actually a very kind way to summarize the track record of the government
0: yes yeah, civility is our safe word today <laughs> safe word. so
2: so, I mean, when you look at
0: President Trump coming in, it's been, what, two months and everybody's making these decisions. We're speaking today. I think this is being taped or at least surveilled. So what, <laughs> what's happened today was they pulled the health care bill and now everybody at the end of the world. Now look, the, the legislative process is inherently predictable because it was designed to be both deliberative and it was designed to prevent hasty mistakes the legislative process will go up and down and everybody's already judging the Trump presidency one way or another. And, and like any president, be it Obama or Reagan or Lincoln or FDR, it's going to take time. The system is designed to take time and, and make the right decision. So I think that that's one of the things that president Trump is, is that you will see a lot of the base vote that he received will be a little frustrated that things aren't moving that quickly or they'll yell at the house to move more quickly or the Senate to move more quickly But the legislative process is people who love the Constitution, you should be happy that things don't move as quickly as you'd like, because it's designed to take time to do, hopefully, the right thing. And so with the Trump presidency itself, you can't make any snap judgments right now, because, you know, there's also for someone like President Trump, who had never served in government before, there will be a learning curve that politics is vastly different in washington than it is in new york in the in the private sector the public sector politics and private sector politics are not the same thing.
2: and it's and very so interesting that, that you mentioned president trump because if there is ever going to be anyone who is ranting and raving and upset at the idea that things aren't happening fast enough it would be president trump himself who again probably doesn't understand the system the way you're explaining it is basically designed so that whoa nothing happens quickly but one of the things you would
0: see especially with people who were CEOs, uh, when they get in and they wind up, you, you know, later in life entering policy is the, it's the inversion. It's the inversion of the pyramid that I, I used to tell school kids about. You remember in the American Revolution, you had a pyramid, you had the king on top and the people on the bottom. And we changed that. We put the people on top, the sovereign citizens, and we put our public servants on the bottom. So when people come in and say, I want to run government like a a business, be they a member of Congress, the Senate or the president, you have to understand that that's not how this works, because you're not the boss. The sovereign American people are above you. And if they don't like what you're doing somewhere in the system, they're going to be heard by the Senate, by the House, by the president. So you don't have the ability like with Paul Ryan. The president doesn't have the ability to fire Paul Ryan. He's in a separate, equal branch of government elected by his peers who were equally elected to serve their districts. Same with Mitch McConnell, or if it was Schumer, or if it was Pelosi on the other side of the coin. So they're going to run into a system that is designed to preclude the very type of power a CEO in the private sector has, which is the ability to fire people and and make things get done more quickly. Because if you're a CEO of a company, you are on top of the pyramid. That's not an inverted pyramid. That's your old... uh, Giza. So <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard for them to come in and get that part because it's so, it's so antithetical to how they operate. And sometimes you would see generals would have that problem too when they come in because they're the, the epitome of the hierarchical, vertically integrated chain of command. And meanwhile, you're dealing with disparate actors all over who answer to different constituents of sovereign citizens, constituencies of sovereign citizens. So it can be very frustrating and in many ways it can also be very perplexing to them. Being perplexed and consternated is a very bad thing, and not even KFactate will stop the consternation.
2: <laughs> I, I feel like these slogans should be available somewhere, you know, uh, T-shirts, bumper no, stickers. They are. There should they be are. A... I've been
0: writing them on the dumpster <laughs> by where I eat my soup with the other tramps.
2: You should uh, obviously have a store, uh, an online store, for some of your pearls of wisdom, which could be linked to your Twitter, by the way, which I forgot to mention in the intro because I was so excited to speak with you and revel in our shared mutual hate. At Thad McCotter is where people can find you on Twitter. It's
0: not hate. We don't hate. It's true. we're, We're pretending to be
2: civil. We're pretending to be civil. And so even the hate is faux hate. You... Actually, tweeted something uh, very faux oh, hate. Oh, <laughs> faux hate, yes. Again, also something available at the Thad McCotter Superstore. It already—it went from being an online store. It's already a superstore, so uh, I'm sure somewhere in the greater uh, Michigan area, and by that I mean the it, entire state, you can find it.
0: Amazing. Hire American, buy American. Right. My garage is not being outsourced.
2: No, exactly. And yeah, this is great, good old-fashioned, USDA-approved American hate. This
0: hate... Straight does... from straight from the arsenal of democracy. It is not hate. <laughs> it's more Hunter S. Thompson, fear and loathing.
2: It is, indeed.
0: But indeed. without the fear.
2: <laughs> it's, hey, I've been to Las Vegas enough. There is a lot more loathing than fear in Las Vegas. So I think that's a, that's right. a sound that's point. Right,
0: I mean... In the end, in the end, in all seriousness, I mean, the American people always right the ship. It just takes time, and eventually, you know, the process is messy. Democracy is very messy, but that's part of its beauty, is we're not a top-down totalitarian dictatorship where one can't get to tell everybody what to do. I mean, that's what the revolution was about. That's what the Constitution's about. It's designed to prevent that. You know, I know that it's—one of the things that's very fascinating is how a constitutional republic, which we have, with democracy— how the citizenry adapts to the fact that you can get instant gratification, instant information with the push of a button, literally, these days. And your constitutionally designed legislative process is the antithesis of that.
2: By design, you know, obviously. By
0: design. <laughs> so the culture in which you receive and disseminate information and and consume goods and services is, and communicate to your friends and everything else is in stark opposition to the way that the legislative process is designed, which I would argue is a good thing. But it's going to have a very interesting impact on the citizenry because they will expect instant result, which generally my, you know, you don't want these people in Washington making instantaneous decisions. <laughs> Just trust me, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, you having spent all that time in the belly of the beast, I think you have a pretty good understanding of it. You know, the specific people, and in some cases, just the types of people that are there. And yeah, long, drawn out processes that drag on for seemingly an eternity is probably going to basically keep food on the table and the roof over our head at least a little bit longer. Uh, to that point, you actually tweeted something funny earlier. Uh, this, again, is Friday. March 24th, we're talking here. I thought the, I blocked you. you. You did, but I had another account. That was the problem. I, I logged in as the Blackcast account. You tweeted that, It's now or never is a good song, but an unsound strategy for a health care bill. Was that kind of the indication that this wasn't going to happen when Trump said, Look, you guys got to pass this or I'm moving on. and I'm tired of wasting my time with this.
0: Well, and it, it's the false binary choice. To stick a binary choice on the legislative process is, is unsound in general. Because the whole purpose of it is, look, it's, the House is designed so that the, major, the will of the majority prevails. It doesn't say Republican, it doesn't say Democrat, but it is the majority. It's the place where immediate issues go and the passions are first aired so they can cool off by the time you get to this constitutionally designed, deliberative, and slow Senate. And so in the House, you have to be willing to let things fail, to tinker with them, to make them work, to build the necessary majority to send it to the Senate for further due deliberation. And before it goes to a president for his or her signature, if they are so willing, because, again, it's designed to make sure there aren't mistakes, because the mistakes have the, the moral consequence of a mistake by government upon the citizenry is something the founders were extremely wary of and, and guarded against. And I think the vast majority of legislators worry about that, too. They don't say it that way, but making their constituents upset is the same thing, because you've done something to make their lives less pleasant, which was not what they sent you there to do. But in the final analysis, what again, I go back to what I said, but immediate gratification is not there. So when you look at the health care bill, like, why didn't they just do this and pass it? Well, because you want the public to be able to weigh in on it through their represent, talk to their representatives and senators, have them discuss it, have the open forums, the social network, the old mainstream media. You want everybody weighing in because that helps you understand what you're dealing with. And it helps to pierce the bubble of Washington. That's healthy. So to me, pulling the bill, it It's not now or never. It's okay. It's not now, but that doesn't mean never because the legislative process doesn't stop. You can always go back and make it better. You can do this. You can listen more. And And if Obamacare is imploding, as is said, to simply sit and wait for it to implode and to hurt Americans, if that is indeed what happens, then you have a moral obligation to try to prevent that harm as best you can, as soon as you can through the process, which again is deliberately slow. So you can't just drop it and walk away and go, well, we'll wait till more people get hurt.
2: Right. And and for, for me, as a complete outsider and also a borderline idiot, my thinking is that the people in Congress should know that this is the way the system works. And, you know, Republicans, of course, were just beating the drum. Replace. Well, first, just repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to tell people we need to replace it. But it seems like they've had so many years to come up with this replacement, and yet it still doesn't seem to quite work. People aren't ready to vote on it. And as you alluded to, there are these town halls where the citizenry is speaking out. There are a lot of people that are perfectly happy with Obamacare, and maybe they didn't like President Obama for various reasons. They're just like, well— What's this new healthcare going to be? What I have now is actually pretty good. And I feel like they just didn't take the time. And as you said, it's by design so slow. They have nothing but time, but they didn't want to take the time to try and get it right. They just wanted to get it done.
0: What happened was when you're in the minority, in terms of having a president from the other party, even if you're in the majority in Congress, you know, I mean, if the executive branch is in the other party's hands, you know that. President Obama isn't going to sign the bill repealing Obamacare. <laughs> yes. A statement of fact. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't expect a change of heart. I don't think <laughs> it's going to happen. So you could vote on repeal to show your base that you were ready, that you were prepared for. But what you saw today with the health care bill being pulled and what you saw with the difficulty in trying to get to a majority, which apparently wasn't obtained within the Republican caucus itself, is that when you started putting out alternatives to it, those fissures within the Republican Party philosophically would come to the fore. And so it was politically so much easier for them to express their displeasure with Obamacare, and it was politically necessary in their minds to mask the fissures within their own party as to what they would replace it with. And that's what happened. So I'm sure that Paul Ryan has studied this because he loves policy. This is what he does. You know, and I think in his heart of hearts, that's what he loves most about being an elected official is dealing with politics, not the politics. But you would also have other people who felt the same way, and they come up with vastly different ideas, even within the Republican Party. So they were never really willing to engage that at a time when, if they did pass something that repealed and replaced Obamacare, that it wouldn't work, you know, because he wouldn't sign it. Do you know what I mean? So... It became trying to come up with alter- the alternative Republican plan, in their minds, and not necessarily wrongly, would have been an exercise in political masochism. Because the Republicans would have spent all this time beating each other up on something that was never going to happen while President Obama was there. And as you alluded to, I mean, the surprise that President Trump was elected, I think they just they were like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, because they, they kind of expected four more years of Hillary Clinton never yeah. signing the repeal of Obamacare or an alternate alternative plan in place. But the one thing that I will say that they should have done a long time ago is come out more in terms of that this is recognition that there are certain principles we have to build this on, that there are certain things that are acceptable to enough of us to get something passed, and started there. Before they went ahead and drafted a bill and tried to figure out how to get the vote afterward. Because it's a question of supply and demand, and Obamacare tried to curb both the supply through government control and the demand through government control the IPABs, independent payment advisory boards, the rationing panels that they would eventually become. And so you know you don't want that in a free society because it turns a citizen into a subject. That's antithetical to the United States, You're, they're basically taking the inverted pyramid and turning it back over with the government on top. You don't want that. But they didn't start from those premises. And, and they looked at it more like a numbers coverage issue, as opposed to how do you get access to care? How do you deal with the supply and demand? How do we free up supply so that the rising demand is determined by the American people and their health care needs They can control it. They can reduce the cost. They can drive consumer competition into the system. How do we take care of people with pre-existing conditions and catastrophic illnesses that aren't covered? What do we do about the people who don't want the coverage? And they never hashed those fundamentals of it out, which is why they were dealing with fundamentals like that, even up to the time we're talking about. They're still dealing with it. And that, to me, is something they could have done without really ripping open fissures in the caucus for bills that were never going to be signed into law. Because now you have a president that would sign it.
2: Right. And obviously playing a very important role in all of this, as you mentioned, is Speaker Paul Ryan. And I'm wondering, in your dealings with Paul Ryan, apart from being a Packers fan, did you consider him to be an okay guy? Oh, he's a really good guy.
0: And and in some ways that people mistake that for weakness. he's very, very determined. I mean, he didn't get to be Speaker of the House and our vice presidential candidate being a milquetoast. He doesn't fit the paradigm of the vicious evil legislative czar, okay, but in many ways, while it will be viewed as a detriment right now that he was willing to listen to others as he crafted the bill, he also knows that the legislative process works. He was a committee chairman. He gets this. He understands it. He said before he became Speaker he wanted the committee's to actually do their work and have more input on things. And so in the long run, it's good to have him there. In in the short term, people will, you know, playing the blame game, he'll get blamed, President Trump will get blamed, the Democrats will get blamed, everybody will get blamed. It's like, look, man, you know what didn't work? And I think Paul, because of the nature of his personality, Is He's not going to hate the Freedom Caucus forever and never listen to him on anything. You know what I mean? He's going to go back and go, okay, this didn't work, man. How do we make this? It's like a band, all right? It's like The Who back when they were beating the hell out of each other. (laughs) Somehow they managed to make it work. You know what I mean? You can make it work. It's like the Beatles and Abbey Road, man. They knew it was a lot. Well, let's make it work. Let's put all this stuff aside as long as, you know, as long as you're going on the record. <laughs> so, so I think that I think that they'll go back, and they have a chance now to go from what turned out to be the monstrosity of the Let It Be session. <laughs> <laughs> and they can come back, do it right, and with somebody like Paul, who's really a McCartney personality type, and go, okay, let's do one. Let's do this right this time. Let's all get together and let's see what we got here and they can make a better product.
2: So you're saying that we could get, she came in through the bathroom window instead of I dig a pony. Well, the people listening to this podcast will get golden slumbers. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) By the way, like the who, do we expect Paul Ryan to do 30 years worth of farewell tours? No,
0: I don't think that. (laughs) The beauty of Paul Ryan is he didn't want to be speaker. I mean, I know a lot of guys do the and, and gals do the dance. So I don't want to be in leadership. Wink, wink.
2: Yeah, in fact, uh, it's not him. To, <laughs> it's not him. To bring it to my comfort zone, which is uh, nerdy science fiction movies, the emperor in Star Wars was like, oh, no, I don't want all this power. But if you voted it to me, I guess I'll take it.
0: I guess I won't kill you all. <laughs>
2: yes, thank you. And then fast forward a couple of years, like, oh, no, wait, I am going to kill you all. <laughs>
0: He didn't have civility.
2: <laughs> he was just a hater. Yeah, exactly. He needs to have <laughs> so, the faux I, civility. Yeah,
0: yeah, but I think that, that was with, with Ryan, and what's going to happen is Paul's going to try to get the other three Beatles together and, and do a better job this time. You know, I remember Magical Mystery Tour was a disaster, too. And Yellow Submarine came along. Oh, they didn't participate in it much. It still was a better product. So I think that that's a possibility. And again, everybody thinks a legislative defeat or a misstep or a pulled bill is
2: the end of the world
0: no look good good you know better you make a mistake and pull it before you impose it on the american people right
2: yeah i mean i think that uh, there are definitely going to be plenty of people that feel like no 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 because no, we can pass it and then fix it I, I believe that's a i'm paraphrasing nancy pelosi but the idea that well we got to pass it and then we can read what's in it the idea of getting it right Ought to make it easier to pass. And obviously, it'll be a very partisan issue. But if you have good things in there, you know, people want to get reelected. So if they're like, well, people are going to think this is a good idea. So I guess I'm going to vote for it, you know? And, you know, Trump had that meeting earlier in the week with a bunch of representatives. And he had said, if you don't pass this, you might not get reelected. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. If we do pass it, we might not get reelected. That's the, the yin to that yang, but uh, I, I don't know how Trump feels about yin and Yeah, and yangs. what
0: undergirds it all, Christian, is the American people who are the boss. What you just laid out sounds to people like politics as usual, but I want them to step back and go, when when President Trump is talking to the members of Congress like that, who are they all afraid of? Who are, Each other? Right. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Who are they afraid of? The American people. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You want your servants out there in Washington to know that they got to come back and answer to you one way or another. So ironically, that's actually an affirmation that our inverted pyramid of the people on top and the government on the bottom is still working.
2: Well, Thad, we could talk about this stuff all day, but I think it's time we move on to something really important, something that the American people need to know your thoughts on. Are the Tigers going to have a good season this year?
0: Whoa. You know, it's, it's the same same old story, man. It, what does the bullpen do? Does K-Rod come back and stay strong? I mean, what are our middle relievers going to do? Because the starting, the starters are good. The day-to-day lineup, we've got an issue in center field, but Jacoby Jones is coming on. And so for the Tigers, it's the same thing. What does the bullpen do? With Cabrera, Kinsler, J.D. Martinez, I mean, Victor Marquinez, dude, we're going to hit. Yes. And the starting pitching's looking good because Verlander showed that Verlander went from a thrower to a pitcher last year. Took a little while, but he got there. So I don't see him falling off. I see him having another great year. Fulmer, I don't see a sophomore jinx. You got Norris coming along. We got Zimmerman coming back. He's a bit of a question mark coming off the surgery. And then I think Boyd is probably going to get the five spot. You know, that's a little shaky, but he can come on. But in the final analysis, it goes down to the bullpen. That's why we didn't win the World Series in 13 when the Red Sox beat us. We should have beat the Red Sox.
2: But they just kept running out those guys who couldn't get anybody out. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's one of those things that obviously for years, a lot of teams tried to kind of cut corners on the middle relief. You'd spend all the money on the closer. But then, of course, oh, right. Somebody's got to pitch the seventh and eighth inning so the closer can come in. Huh. How do we find those guys? And Verlander really figured things out. Obviously, he was just distracted by a terrible home life. He has that very unsightly (laughs) wife to have to go home to. You know, he probably he never wanted to be in the house. We should all feel for his struggle, you know?
0: In, in Detroit, especially, we're all really, really, really happy for Jim Leland and <laughs> Team USA for the World Baseball Classic.
2: Yes, that was very exciting to see. And Yeah, uh,
0: that was really cool to see him come out of retirement for one last go-around with the Team USA and then win it all. I mean, I thought that was great because... I love Jim
2: Leland. There are very few guys, if any, still in baseball. And, you know, arguably he's not really in baseball anymore, but he's obviously was just the coach of the Team USA for the World Baseball Classic. There are not a lot of guys in baseball like that anymore. I'm actually having trouble of thinking of your Jim Leland types. You know, you have some guys that are cut from similar cloths, but, you just don't feel like you get a lot of that anymore. Obviously, everybody needs to be so polished now and so media friendly, you know. Oh, you can talk to me in the dugout during the game. No problem, Joe Buck. Well,
0: Leland, Leland was beautiful because he'd just he just go sneak around, have his smoke in the dugout, <laughs> in the runway. Yeah. He was old school, man. Yeah. Oh, I like Brad Ausmus. I don't, I'm not one of those Ausmus knockers, but I just loved Leland because he was so old.
2: Yeah, no, it's funny because when you referenced that, it kind of reminded me how in the 70s on The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, when the camera would cut to his guest, he would always pick up the ashtray, get a couple of big drags off of it. And there'd just be a cloud of smoke when it cut back to his, you didn't see him smoking on cameras. Like Ed must have a smoke machine somewhere back behind the desk. And uh, I guess that was kind of a similar thing with Leland. Well, I, uh, I hope that uh, for your sake, that they have a good season is all lost with the lions. Like, is that just too far down the road? Like you can't, you don't even want to ruin no. your spring yet thinking no, about that. Bob,
0: no, Bob Quinn, the new GM. I mean, he had a great free agency. This guy has an eye for talent. You know, he came out of the Patriots organization. So the way that he's gone about it, we got T.J. Lang, who was a great addition, obviously all pro guard, even though he was a homegrown product and went to Brother Rice High School. But not everybody gets into Catholic Central. And then we, <laughs> we, picked, up, we picked up Wagner from the Ravens. So their offensive line is looking really good. And obviously Stafford, I'm a, I'm a Stafford supporter. I think he's got what it takes. And and we got the draft coming up, which we think he's going to go heavy on defense. But he's spotted that some of the things that he's done—the guys you never hear about—that he pulls off of waivers or he picks up at you know the lesser heralded free agents—and in the later rounds of the draft, have come through. So as we're watching a, a GM that has been able now to focus on the players and the ability of the players to, to fit in the system, but to have the talent to play at that level, which has been something the Lions used to miss on the lower rounds all the time. They were not very uh, well equipped, apparently, to deal with judging talent in the lesser rounds. And he's every—I think almost every one of the people he drafted played at some time for the Lions and they made it to the playoffs. So, look, I know I'm too old to be optimistic about the Lions, <laughs> but I, I'm not as Let's just this—I'm not as pessimistic as I have been. That's civility.
2: It's funny. I, so was, civility. Uh, I was. I was uh, listening to a, a podcast and the guy's actually from Detroit, one of the guys on the show, and he's a lion season ticket holder. And he talked about how they raised prices again. And he's just like, yeah, you know now what? he
0: can't have a therapist and season pick.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. And I guess having, gotta you got to choose. And I guess going to the lions game is the therapist. And it's just sort of the, I guess the idea is like, you know what? Can't, can't you cut us a break? Haven't we suffered enough? But uh, I agree with you. I like Stafford. I think we've seen growth around him. And obviously, despite what old players who played other positions will say, it does all start with the quarterback. So it'll be interesting to see, but Hey, tiger season comes first. Uh, do you still do the radio show that it mentions on your Twitter?
0: Yeah, we do Freedom Asylum. It's uh, noon to two every Saturday on uh, nine ten a.m. Super Station Detroit. Catch it live streaming.
2: Is it available as a podcast, or is that too fancy of a concept for you to know? The uh, they
0: post them up on YouTube. They're lurking about. And, you know, it's kind of fun. It's You know, it's something to do. It's kind of like what you're doing now, except exciting.
2: <laughs> and there are probably more people listening. I don't know which one I'm talking about, but uh, I think we could pull all of our listeners together and maybe fill a movie theater. But I don't know. I'm sure you're doing well. I'm just trying. Well, to... I don't
0: know, but we could certainly fill our mittens and sheets, <laughs> by counting them on our fingers and toes.
2: Yes. And as I said, uh, follow him on Twitter as he identifies himself a recovering Congress bum at Thad McCotter, Thaddeus McCotter, as Dennis always called him, T-Mac, one of our favorite guests over the years on The Dennis Miller Show. You made more than 50 appearances. Did you know that?
0: No, see, Blatt, I didn't know that. (laughs) I would explain why I've aged so badly.
2: And you only sent Dennis a copy of The Blue Lagoon once.
0: Well, I tell you, man, The Blue Lagoon, that was just depraved. (laughs) So, I I had... I felt... Debased buying it to send it to
2: him. Well, he always enjoyed having you on the show, and that was one of the funniest things when he told me, "He's like, you'll never believe what T max sent (laughs) me—the blue lagoon." I
0: hope that every time he watches that, and you know he does. Oh, we know he he forgets where he forgets where it (laughs) came
2: from. Yeah, I'm sure he has by this point. Anyway, at Thad McCotter, uh, I look forward to uh, sharing our mutual
0: collegiality. Yes, Yes. and civility, mutual mutual civility. civility.
2: We'll we'll share it again in the future. Having you on the BlackCast again before too long. Uh, obviously, you'll need to lose another bet before that happens. But uh,
0: yeah, and half my sanity. <laughs> All
2: right, baby. Yes, indeed. That was former Republican Congressman of Michigan Thad McCotter, TMac. On Twitter, at Thad McCotter, as I said, really appreciate him taking some time. And look, he's one of those guys I could talk to all day. But the longer I talk to him, the more likely I feel like I'll reveal just how uneducated I am and just how much above my head all of that went. So it was great to talk to him, though. And we will be back on Wednesday with an all new episode of The Blackcast, another episode celebrating 10 years since the launch of The Dennis Miller Show. And I'm very excited about our guests. We're going to have two great friends at The Dennis Miller Show. We're going to talk to Deborah Saunders, who many knew as the token conservative for the San Francisco Chronicle. But now she has a great new job. I'm very excited to talk to her about. She's the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And we're also going to talk to someone who has a new job as well, the Washington Bureau Chief for Infowars.com. Also the author of The Abomination, Where's the Birth Certificate? Where's the real birth certificate? Partners in crime. Good night, Obama. Hunting Hitler. New scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Nazi Germany. And of course, the Shroud Codex. Yes, that's right. We'll also be joined by a mysterious visitor from the East, Dr. Jerome Corsi. So make sure to check out that episode when it's posted on Wednesday. But for now, we're out of time. So we'll see you next time on the Blackcast Tribute 2. The Dennis Miller Show on Westwood One.